Kia ora. I'm Kirsten Lacey, Director of the Auckland Art Gallery Toyo Tamaki, and you're listening to Cultured Conversations. This is a podcast series that we decided to make back during COVID lockdown in 2020. Uh, to get conversations going here in Aotearoa, New Zealand about cultural wellbeing and cultural communities. Going forward three years now, we're in a whole new uh, place and time and able to have a much longer view of history, I mean, looking into the future rather. And um, we're able to bring together in person leaders from across New Zealand and Australia and the region to talk about the nexus of culture, governance, uh, politics, um, the arts, and also our leading national uh, 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 creative institutions. I'm really delighted to be joined today by Tina Baum. Tina has been the curator within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander curatorial team at the National Gallery of Australia for many years, decades working as a curator um, of First Nations art in Australia. She is uh, from the uh, Gulamurjan, Larakia, Waterman, Karajari peoples of the Northern Territory, but has heritage from a number of different nations beyond Western Australia, Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, Scottish and German heritage. And she's here in Tamaki Makoto, supporting the exhibition she curated, Ever Present, First Peoples Art of Australia. Welcome, Tina. Yeah, kia ora. Thank you for having me. Tina, I thought we might start our conversation actually just talking about your journey into art. Where did you first encounter the visual arts in your life and why did you decide to make it the driving force of your work? Oh, look, it's been an interesting journey. It's I've grown up around it all my life. So, you know, part of my uh, cultural heritage as an Aboriginal woman, um, art and culture is, is, you know, intertwined. And so living and uh, growing up in Garamilla or Darwin in the Northern Territory, there's, there's a lot of that art and culture in the city. And I grew up around it a lot. And, you know, certainly through high school and, and through all of, um, you know, my university years, I actually got into the arts by chance, really. I actually wanted to be an air traffic controller. And it wasn't until as a teenager, the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory had an open day that I went in and had a look and, and thought, wow, you know, what is this? You know, who who, who creates these spaces? Um, and, and, and by chance, the University of Canberra at the time had uh, developed a museum studies course and um, it kind of went from there. And so as the, the inaugural students that went through, um, yeah, I've been, been, you know, living and working this life really all my life, but uh, specifically since uh, the late 1980s, uh, which has been a wonderful journey. Mm. The first group of students through museum studies in the Northern Territory in Australia, three decades later, really, you must have seen so much change in the art scene over that time. Not only seen it, but also been a part of the change within the sector, um, both in museums and galleries. So, you know, uh, as a young, fresh, fresh person into this, into these spaces, um, many of the organisations that I work for, I was the only Aboriginal person working in them, um, and you know, they weren't 
quite the culturally safe spaces that you you certainly want and and we have today uh, in institutions. But working with colleagues in other departments and working with the sector in creating that understanding and awareness and and engagement, um, you know, we've really been able to make some some really meaningful changes. Um, and particularly with when it comes to employment and representation within institutions. So, um, yeah, I've seen a lot of changes and really hopeful and positive changes too. So, um, yeah, it's been an absolute joy that I'll continue to work in for a number of years. I mean, institutions are, are shifting, but also the arts scene continues to just reinvent and innovate what we refer to as the desert art movements of the 1970s. They just there's, they, they just seem to continually eclipse themselves. Um, what are your thoughts ab- ab- about that intergenerational um, change and shift but also constant reinvention that takes place? In the sort of two elements, um, not only across Australia, the shift and change, the acceptance and engagement that's been happening uh, with First Nations art and culture um, for the better has been an incredible shift and to be a part of as well, but also in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities where, you know, artists and individuals are, are getting that confidence and support to be able to tell their stories, to to give them the space to create the arts they want to. Um, there's a lot of histories and stories and, and uh, cultural elements that that many artists want to share. And, you know, if we've got that opportunity through the exhibitions, through programming within, you know, museums and galleries, then we're certainly adding to that growth and understanding. And it's just, it's it's wonderful to see. But, you know, I think there's still, you know, little areas that we'd like to sort of still delve into and, and really highlight the importance of balancing the, the narratives of Australia's history and um, and I think artists are doing that so beautifully. It's a pretty tough history. And in our lifetimes, you know, child of the 70s also, yeah. <laughs> um, we saw the Bringing Them Home report, uh, which for, for those Australians or others listening uh, who don't know, was a, a piece of work which looked at... Um, the systematic removal of Aboriginal children from their family by state, it tells the stories. And you can look into and read the stories that are uh, published in that report from the state you live in, and I would encourage all Australians to do that. And then, you know, since then, the apology, um, all a statement from the heart, there has been more activity in the latter part of the, in our lifetime perhaps than prior to then in bringing to the fore and, and greater awareness Australia's um, really bloody history. Mm. But a bit about your family, Tina, if you felt comfortable sharing your parents, your grandparents, um, what was their experience of um, their Aboriginal communities? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, my mother um, from Darwin and, and dad growing up just south of, well, he grew up and was born in Broome. Whenever these um, major events um, and policy or, or um, you know, reports have been released. There are interesting times where both the community have the opportunity to, you know, showcase their stories and their histories, but also within families to be able to talk about these histories. We know a lot of them when we're, you know, having conversations within the family or within the community, 
to have artists elevate those stories is just so courageous. Um, some of them are really quite quite hard stories, but you know, art is an incredible um, tool for healing. You know, it's a way of not only sharing those stories but also um, to to heal as a as a as a mechanism. But within my family, you know, we 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 talk about. Um, and always have talked about our histories and and what those experiences are, and certainly respect those that might not want to share. You know, my grandmother in Western Australia didn't have the best of experiences, um, and she certainly didn't talk about it a great deal. But we know that history, and we um, are, are still proud of that that connection and that history. And even though I don't live. Uh, in Western Australia or haven't even visited the community where um, my family, uh, my father's family are from, um, you know, you still have a sense of connection through those those stories that are told. And that's like with any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander family that, you know, use these, these moments in time to open up and share those stories. So the Royal Deaths in Custody, mm. um, you know, all of these events that are, that are coming up, it generates a lot of conversations um, and also generates a lot of work by artists who then have, you know, that, that approval or the platform then to, to share those stories. So, yeah, in, important moments in time. So important. Mm. You've been around Indigenous leadership conversations a long time. What, what have we got to learn from Indigenous leadership? Well, the, the one key thing that I keep saying that Indigenous leadership is different to um, Western leadership. The models are different. The way that we operate and think are, are, are very different. And, you know, we certainly, from the uh, First Nations perspective, have had to work within the, you know, Western leadership space for a very long time. But that's not quite reciprocated and, and that understanding um, and engagement is not happening the other way as much as I think that it should be. And um, perhaps that's where, you know, the latest conversation about the voice is, is you know, one avenue where people are, are looking to to get a better understanding or at least give the First Nations peoples of Australia the, the opportunity to to talk about, you know, their leadership and, and um, you know... Um, ideas and things. So, um, yeah, Indigenous leadership is, you know, it's a very different focus that we have in a very different way. But, you know, knowing how to work within those two spaces and how they can, um, you know, work together or, or need to be changed if they don't work together um, is uh, re they're really important steps that we need to, to keep making with the, into the future. What are the changes you'd like to see to enable that in mainstream organisations? Yeah, I think one of those, the, the key things is um, to sit back, listen and, um, and, and not talk. You know, it's, it's giving us that space to, to educate, to, to say what we want and to lead things the way that we do um, and to come on that journey with us, to understand that, you know, if we do certain things in a certain way, that's how we need to do it and, and not to try and change it or to, to um, you know, work around it. It's just a very different way of operating and it's worked for us for since time immemorial. So we've worked on things and, and we know things and things that are culturally appropriate. So listening and not talking um, and engaging at a different level where you, you can only hope that there's a deeper level of understanding. So, yeah, there's a little work to do in that space. One of the practices you brought to us here, though, with the exhibition 
and our installation team was the practice of sharing an acknowledgement to country every morning before work began. And it's a welcome to country which you've written. And I, I wondered if you might share with our listeners what that welcome to country means, but also how you've been able to adapt it as the exhibitions moved, I guess. Yes. Uh, for me, it's been really important to not only acknowledge the, the local iwi, the communities and, and um, that are of this land that we're on as a cultural measure for whenever we've travelled our collections and works overseas. I suppose it's been a practice that I've, I've I just adapted when I started working in museums and galleries and particularly when they were... Um, culturally sensitive materials or ancestors that were, um, you know, the human remains that were in these museum spaces. Every day I'd walk into um, the the stores where I, wherever I worked and would just speak aloud and, and say, good morning, welcome, it's it's me, I'm here, um, I'm here to, to look after you. And so, you know, we have some incredibly important works that have, um, you know, uh, gone offshore and it's a way of teaching as I said to teach the staff and and um, show them that this is how we would pay our respects and acknowledge that you know there are many different communities and artists that we are working with um, that there's a there's a connection there's a spirit still that is evident in the space which is why we're doing a, a smoking ceremony um, and if you can't do smoking ceremonies, then there's certainly sound cleansing that you can do with the yidaki, um, yidaki. So, you know, there's important cultural measures that um, I like to to incorporate so that not only the artists know and communities know that we are being respectful of the works and any ancestors or any anything that comes with the artworks know that we are there, we are still looking after them and, and being respectful as well. Um, but also for um, my cultural safety as well, knowing that, um, you know, I can maintain that connection with the works and with the stories, um, with that knowledge that's being um, shown and encapsulated in these spaces. So, yeah, it was a really wonderful and, and um, engaging way of working with staff wherever we, we travel the exhibitions um, so that we know that, you know, we have measures that, that just kind of are culturally appropriate and, and safe. Mm. Um, so having that karaki at the beginning was just, it had me in tears. It was just the most beautiful way of, of knowing that there's that additional layer of protection for, for everybody, the staff, as well as the work. So, yeah. It's like all these practices to me uh, anchor us, but it's about caring for actively the wairua, um, as we say here, or the spirit that is within the work, within the space and comes with you through your own ancestry. Um, mm. So important, but enriching as well from a Pakiha perspective to be gifted these practices that you can participate in and, and come to a deeper understanding of, of culture through. You've taken this exhibition to Perth to Singapore, National Gallery of Singapore, and now to New Zealand. What are your observations about taking national Taonga treasures to the world, but also the difference in the reception that the show has received as it's travelled? Yeah, it's it's been really interesting. 
I suppose as a curator in Australia, you get quite comfortable in your space and have a level of expectations that you think, oh, the audience knows this and that and, you know, information. And so when you are working with audiences that have either a very little understanding or connection or knowledge of, it really enables you to refocus and, and, you know, not take for granted what people may know. And so going to Western Australia was, you know, just as much or, you know, with Perth, it was a, you know, kind of a refresher. You know, being on the West Coast, we had a lot of, um, a, a whole diversity of artists featured. Going to Singapore, it was an absolutely clean slate. And so the audiences there were just so engaging and so, um, you know, understanding about the stories that were being told because like with New Zealand and um, and Singapore, there is a um, a British history as well, mm. um, which many of the audiences could get an understanding of. But also, um, there's a different level of cultural connections as well, where with the Macassans that you know had engagement um, and relations with Aboriginal people all across the north of Australia. Audiences in Singapore may not have known that there was this this centuries long connection. Um, and likewise, you know, with the cultural knowledge and practices or certainly the uh, colonial colonisation in uh, New Zealand, it's, you know, there's different levels of engagement that you can have with audiences. So just being able to share those stories and the art and, and uh, the diversity, the excellence that's on show has really fostered some beautiful engagement and sharing of stories which is what you could only ever hope for that people engage with and then then sort of self-reflect and tell stories of what's happened in their own communities. Bringing us back now before we wind up to the Yes referendum, which you mentioned, I'm wondering, Tina, what you're hearing in community about it. What are the threads in the dialogue and the hopes and the fears around this public discussion that you're Mm. party to? Oh, look, you know, this is... It's a momentous occasion. Naturally, something as as major as this, it's generated a lot of conversations in communities, both in the mainstream and in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Um, Some misinformation, some sort of information that is, um, you know, either confusing or, you know, cementing people's um, decisions on what they're going to vote and how they're going to vote. And, you know, we can only hope that, uh, mainstream audiences or, or Australians in general will recognise that there needs to be um, um, better levels of um, understanding and representation within the constitution. Being recognised in the constitution is is a really important way of recognising the, the First Nations people of, of Australia. And, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, conversation that many will still have until the referendum is held. You know, yes, there are those that, um, you know, feel that something stronger is needed, and but there are many that also think that um, the voice is, is one step in, in, in uh, many that need to be taken um, when it comes to the, you know, the affairs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So, yeah, I think that that voice of hope is is one of the, the key things that are coming out um, from the conversations that I've had and heard. What do you think the impact would be if the voice was up and running 10 years from now? I mean, it's hard to imagine, but yeah. for the arts world particularly, but for artists making work. Yes. 
yeah. What's the relationship between the arts and what the voice represents? Well, art is a, a political tool. So, you know, the, the conversations, the commentary on um, issues at heart, uh, current issues, um, it will be a really interesting response by artists, I think, in many years to come. We've got many artists that are already starting to discuss this issue, whether it's for or against the voice to parliament. And, you know, I think it's a really important um, moment that, um, you know, artists can talk about what they feel uh, should happen and how things should happen and what may happen into the future, depending on, on what the outcome comes from the referendum. So, you know, the arts is, is always going to be an interesting area and, and a great way of documenting a point in time in Australia's history, regardless of which way it goes. And uh, we'll soon see, so watch this space. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining with me today, Tina. No worries. You've been listening to Cultured Conversations. I'm your host, Kirsten Lacey, Director Auckland Art Gallery, and I've been joined by Tina Baum, Curator at the National Gallery of Australia for this episode. You can listen to more of the series at www.aucklandartgallery or at iHeartRadio or at Business Desk or any of your other preferred podcast platforms.